Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day on this National Agriculture Day. Today and every day, we thank our farmers and ranchers, our producers across the country who provide food, feed, fuel for us, fiber. We thank you very much for your work and salute you today and each day. Coming up on our program today, an update on the battle over California's Proposition 12 that really sets a precedent for other states across the country. It it impacts producers all across the country because if it goes into effect, you have to meet the standards that California sets for production before you sell into that state's market. We'll talk with Michael Formica with the National Pork Producers Council about Prop 12 and the legal challenge fighting it. Also today, a look at the U.S.-China relationship. We'll talk with Jake Parker with the U.S.-China Business Council. We kind of see the early signs of the blueprint for both the Biden administration, and for China moving forward. And we'll get his thoughts on that, even as China's buying a lot of U.S. corn right now. And we'll also talk about infrastructure. On the heels of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, now the Biden administration is pushing a $3 trillion infrastructure package, even though there's some things in there other than infrastructure, but primarily it's being called an infrastructure package. We'll talk about that with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, and also talk about this uh, rail merger that we uh, mentioned yesterday and get his thoughts on that. So all that coming up on a busy program today. But we're going to start things off looking at the border situation or southern border. Last week we talked with the president of the Texas Farm Bureau. Uh, Texas is get, uh, getting a lot of attention on this border issue, but certainly we have other states along that U.S.-Mexico border, including the state of Arizona. And joining us now is the president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, Stephanie Smallhouse. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Uh, what is the situation in your state of Arizona uh, as you talk with ranchers uh, uh, along that border and what they are seeing? Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, um, especially to speak about such a serious issue. You know, our ranch members that that I've spoken with, um, you know, they've been dealing with the porous border um, for for decades, and it really just creates a disruptive and very, very dangerous, you know, for their families and for their livestock operations. You know, with the influx of of, uh, travel that we're seeing right now, um, basically what I'm hearing is that, you know, they're obviously seeing a, a great increase in border patrol activity which is welcome for safety reasons, but it's also fairly disruptive for their operations to try and just do their day-to-day operations. They're seeing quite a bit of increase in trash, but the situation really for them is dangerous on a daily basis, um, and it will become more so. I think a lot of them are really worried right now about if the situation doesn't get under control, about what might happen as, as things heat up, which we're on the edge of that here in Arizona. Our temperature's going up, and what happens when that happens is you know, these ranchers are really the first line of humanitarian aid for these folks. And desperation leads to, um, you know, them interrupting livestock water access. You know, ranchers are constantly dealing with repairs. Um, you know, and when you have a hundred degree, when you have a hundred degree weather and your livestock don't have access to water because lines have been broken, 
that's a serious issue. So I think they're really just worried about whether this situation is going to get under control in time for, for the weather change. We've seen a dramatic increase in the numbers crossing into Texas. What about in Arizona? Well, what I've been told is what's happening is that the parents are dropping their kids at the border crossings. Um, they're being accepted by the Border Patrol. And then the coyotes are taking the parents to very far out areas on the reservation and on these ranches, which is extremely dangerous for both the crossers and the families of the ranchers as people become more desperate. If the parents can get across and get all the way up to, you know, Phoenix, um, the Phoenix Central Arizona area, then they come back for the kids who have already been accepted. So it just really creates a dangerous situation, um, which is desperate for those parents to try and get back to their kids. What do your farmers and ranchers, your members of Arizona Farm Bureau, what are they wanting to see happen? What, how do they want to see this addressed? Well, I think it's always been the same, you know, it's always been the same request, which is border enforcement, um, increase the security on the border. You know, we as an organization feel that a lot of this issue would be addressed if we uh, did some meaningful um, immigration work in this country. You know, we haven't done anything for 30 years. And what that does is it creates desperation for people to get over here because there's no pathway to get over here to accomplish uh, work or, or other things. And and, uh, you know, so the ranchers want greater security so their families feel secure. They don't want to feel like they're in no man's land, which a lot of them feel that way. Um, and then, um, you know, in a greater sense for agriculture, you know, we really just need to reform our immigration system so we can get control of this situation. The House just passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. It goes to the Senate. Uh, do you have any position on that bill? Do you think it would help or do you think it needs uh, more work to be done before something like that is passed? What are your thoughts on it? Well, you know, uh, the bill has a lot of shortcomings and most of those are, are too great for the support of Farm Bureau at this time. We're, we're looking forward to really getting in the weeds on the Senate side and trying to fix some of those things. The current bill that's gone through uh, would make essentially uh, ag labor unaffordable for most of farmers and ranchers in, in the United States, really uh, much less just Arizona. And it creates a lot of uh, litigation threat against farmers and ranchers um, within the bill. And the caps that are on it are just totally unrealistic. Uh, there's no way that that bill will provide enough visas for what agriculture requires. So again, you know, perpetuating this issue that we have on the border um, for our ranchers. Is there an ag labor shortage in Arizona? There's an ag, ag labor shortage everywhere, frankly. Um, there's no worker visa program that currently exists other than H-2A. That program is only available for seasonal work. So if you're in agriculture and you need um, employees year-round, um, which agriculture in Arizona is quite diverse, and so our uh, farmers and ranchers, you know, we have a lot of dairies. You know, they really get hurt by this labor shortage in terms of needing workers year-round, and they don't have access to H-2A. So, um, you know, a considerable issue here. So, Stephanie, in Arizona, your farmers and ranchers, uh, there are a lot of layers to this issue, obviously, but one of them being a security issue, right? The security of their of their property and for their families. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a dangerous environment. I, you know, my friends are these ranchers and we're not that far from them on the board, you know, from the border ourselves, although we don't face the same issues by any means. 
But, you know, these are people that we care about in the agriculture community, and they have to plan their entire lives around where they live in this environment on the border. You know, none of them can leave. They can't leave as a family to go anywhere together. They always have to plan to have someone there. You know, my son started gathering cattle when he was 12 years old. They can't do that on the border. Their children have a very difficult time um, getting, you know, incorporating their children into their operation in terms of the next generation because it's just too dangerous. So it's a big deal. Stephanie, thank you for your time and, and giving us a firsthand look at what's happening uh, along that border in your state of Arizona. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stephanie Smallhouse, president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. All right, up next, we'll talk with Michael Formica with the National Pork Producers Council. We'll talk about the challenge to California's Prop 12 next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. I've been farming my whole life. I don't need somebody to come out here and state the obvious. I don't need anybody to explain my farm to me. My local co-op works with CHS, and they know what I need when I need it. A global network of support. Local expertise. And valuable market options. We need a co-op that's here for us. So we can own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl, but with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. 
a message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We want to get an update on Proposition 12 in California and the legal challenge to it. Joining us now is Michael Formica, Assistant Vice President, Domestic Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, thanks for joining us again. And and for those that aren't familiar or may have forgotten about Proposition 12, uh, explain to us why uh, a ballot initiative like that in, in California impacts producers across the country. Sure, thanks for having me on, and um, happy uh, National Agriculture Day as well. So Prop 12 is the latest uh, of the series of ballot initiatives that we've seen the animal rights groups push across the country. And this this one landed in California, passed in 2018. And what it does is it, it, it regulates how sows are raised and cared for. Um, but more than that, it prohibits the sale of pork into California if they if it's not coming from a piglet that was born to a, a sow raised pursuant to its prescriptive requirements. And California, encompassing about 15% of the total U.S. Uh, pork market, is a just massive, massive uh, state and a massive uh, you know, market for uh, for pork sales. And so, anyone who uh, anyone who cares about uh, eats. Each pork across the country is going to be impacted. Anyone who raises a pig uh, in this country, or you know, or works uh, in conjunction with the pork industry, and, and dare I say, anyone in agriculture, because it's going to be, it's going to impact all of agriculture. It's going to impact grain, uh, grain sales. Uh, you know, Prop 12 also impacts eggs and and veal, but the uh, the pork standards are going into effect at the end of this year, and they're they're quite onerous. Yeah, it really is is far-reaching. When you have a state, especially a a big state like that, that sets up standards that says either you follow our production standards or you can't sell into our market, uh, that's going to impact not only pork producers across the country, but as you pointed out, any other producers or anyone else wanting to sell in that market. Because once you set this precedent, then it can be applied to other products besides pork. That's right. And the concern is, but if they if they just set one standard and that was it, then we might not like it. But you know, maybe we we could figure out a way to manage to it because the you know it's a big enough market. But there's no guarantee that right now they're they want 24 square feet per sow. There's no guarantee that next year California is not going to say, aha, we want 25 square feet per sow, or you know Washington State or Oregon is going to say that, or New York City is going to say that. We can't have every state, you know, in a rate, you know, a, a literal race to the bottom, trying to outdo each other. So the National Pork Producers Council, part of a, a legal challenge to Proposition Twelve, where does that stand? So, so our uh, our case is currently before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, that's a court of appeals that covers most of the Western U.S. We have arguments scheduled for April 14th, so just in a couple of weeks. And we will, uh, it, it's really going to be our first time 
get you know get go in front of a court and and press in our case. We had filed uh, our lawsuit early on. We knew we were you know we we were likely to lose um, at the district court. Uh, that's just sort of the way the, the process works. In order to win on appeal, you, you have to have lost below, and we knew what the what the law in California was. Um, but in that you know in that initial case, we never we never had a chance to argue the case before before the judge. And so now uh, at the Ninth Circuit, we'll you know we'll be arguing before a panel of three judges, and we we are feeling um, cautiously optimistic, as I like to say. We could, uh, and you're not alone. You have others with you on this, right? Yeah, we're so we we filed this suit along with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Um, as, you know, as we we were just talking about, this affects all of agriculture. So Farm Bureau is very very concerned about this, and have been plugging away. We we have 14, uh, 14 different farmers from around the country, uh, different states, different size operations. Uh, we've got you know some folks with a with 150,000 to up to, you know, people with uh, with thousands of thousands, uh, all of them are going to be impacted by this regulation. All of them have no control over it. The, they don't they don't set the market, but they're the ones who are going to be forced to incur the significant significant costs, millions and millions of dollars in in retrofitting their operation to uh, to meet the demands of of some California voters. Um, with no promise that the market's gonna is actually gonna pay them back, because I live in Virginia and no one in Virginia is gonna pay exorbitant amounts for you know, for California pork. Nobody in Iowa is gonna go pay extra money for California pork. Uh, certainly, our, our our you know trade partners around the world aren't gonna pay premiums for California specific pork. We're talking with Michael Formica with the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, I guess it comes down, uh, maybe someone's thinking, well, if you live in a state, doesn't that state have uh, the right to decide how they want things in their state? But I guess it comes down to where to, if one state's rights infringes on the other state's rights, then that's the issue, right? Well, that, that's right. So that it's one state infringing on, on the rights of, of another state. It would be one thing... If California actually produced pork, so if they had a pork, if they had some interest in this, so there there were hog farms in California, they could say, well, we want we want these hog farms to meet these certain standards. But there's no there's no pork industry in California. It takes about seven hundred thousand sows to feed, you know, to produce the piglets to feed the state, and they've got you know twelve hundred, thirteen hundred. Maybe fourteen hundred thousand commercial production. They got you know, a couple of thousand more sows, and you know, for for four uh, H uh, shows and on the show circuit, but not not at a production level where you're going to feed forty million people. And th- and that's really where the the rub of this comes down to is California, without without any interest, without any domestic um, pork industry, is reaching out across the country and trying to dictate its own terms to uh, to the rest of the country. So when is Prop 12 scheduled to take effect? So we, you know, we, we had actually had some good news um, maybe about a month ago is the state of California was supposed to develop regulations implementing Prop 12. 
those regulations were due two years ago, and they haven't they haven't even proposed regulations, although there have been some drafts out. But a, about a month ago, maybe two or three three weeks ago, we'll say, uh, California issued a uh, a question and answer a FAQ document, and one of the items they included in there was something we've been asking for. Uh, the date of Prop 12 says January 1, 2022. But what California said, uh, and this was a big question, does pork need to be compliant on that date, or is that the date sales need to be converted over? And California came out and said pork sales don't need to change on January 1, 2022. That's the date when you have to move your sows into Cal- California-compliant housing. And what that means is, you know, we now have uh, we now have another eight or nine months um, before you're actually going to see um, sales sales within California being impacted. So we'll see. I, I assume we're going to see some ramp up of, of producers trying to figure out how uh, if they want to if they want to convert uh, if they want to make that investment um, gives us some more time to get uh, conversions done. And you know, gives us a like I said, an additional eight or nine months before we see changes in the marketplace taking place, taking effect. But those changes now, are I wonder, be significant. Yeah, it makes you wonder too about the consumers in California if they all realize how they'll be impacted. They are they are starting to realize. There was a recent Rabble Bank report that came out um, talked about. Uh, real marketplace disruption that was going to happen. And that's the first piece. I've been yelling about this for, you know, for a few years. The pork industry has been really concerned about it, but it's not really filtered down to the average, uh, to the average consumer or even, even, you know, mainstream media. But this rabble bank report came out and it seems to have at least generated some stories out there. And you're starting to see more of an understanding um, retailers, restaurants are, are beginning to uh, are beginning to notice that they might lose they might lose supply of pork, um, they might lose access to, uh, to uh, pork, and so there is a in, within California there's a, a coalition that's now emerging of of ethnic um, restaurants, ethnic grocery stores that is stepping up uh, their efforts to try and engage with the. California government yep. and you know asking them for some relief. So we're we're whoa, hopeful whoa. that you know as we get closer, people are learning more. Yep, we'll watch it. We'll watch it closely and stay in touch with you, Michael Formica with the National Pork Producers Council. Thanks, Michael. This is AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thought leaders. 
You'll have a front row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain futures are trading higher on today's trade. Spec funds still own big positions. Exports are ahead of schedule, but corn and bean prices are right about where they have been for the past three months, very near to their green line 20-day moving averages. On the Board of Trade, May corn trading six and a fraction higher at 555 and a fraction. The July contract up a nickel at 536 and a half cent. For soybeans, the May contract up 13 and three quarters at 1431 and a half cent the July contract up 14 and a fraction at 1418 and a fraction for wheats the Chicago wheat may contract trading seven and three quarters higher at 634 and three quarters Kansas City wheat may up a penny at 579 and a fraction Minneapolis spring wheat may up five and a half cent at 631 and three quarters the July contract up five and a half cent at 640 and a fraction Cattle have begun a very important week. Cash needs to trade higher or it will be difficult for futures to regain what was lost last week. Hogs are looking at another strong week as there has been no real change in demand and packers were aggressive on Monday. On the Board of Trade, April live cattle trading 17 cents lower at 118.60. The June contract down 27 at 118.65. Cash cattle country is expected to develop on Wednesday or later this week. For feeders, the April contract down 20 at 139. 922. The May contract down 35 at 144.75. In lean hogs, the May contract up 50 at 95.02. The June contract up 85 at 101.32. In the outside markets, the Dow is up nine points. The Nasdaq composite up two. The S&P 500 up four. Crude oil, the April contract down two dollars and 25 cents at 59.31 per barrel. The U.S. dollar index is trending higher. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The U.S.-China relationship is always complicated. A lot of layers to it right now from an agricultural standpoint. We've been enjoying some big sales of corn to China, but there are much bigger issues, and we have seen them uh, start to be addressed between the new Biden administration and China, and 
kind of talks off to somewhat of a, a, a testy start, I guess you would say. Uh, let's get some insight into this from our next guest, Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, always good to uh, talk with you and get your perspective on this. Uh, what are your thoughts on how things are starting off between the Biden administration and China? Well, I think that the way you described it was just right, Mike, and that is that it was a testy start. I think we have to understand that the Biden administration is prioritizing a number of different policies that are quite different from the previous administration. Trade is no longer the, the top priority when it comes to China, and uh, frankly, it's much lower than many of the domestic priorities for the new administration. So, you know, the, the first meeting, what we hear from when we talk to negotiators is that while it was very, very acerbic on the surface, uh, when the two sides were engaging publicly, the second that those doors were closed, it all was down to business and everyone became very diplomatic. So a little bit different than, than what, what it was publicly, and there's probably room for negotiations. But we should recognize as well that the overlap between the two sides and areas where the two sides want to work together outside of climate change, there's a limited number of those going forward. What do we know about China's plans? Uh, do they kind of have they kind of shown us their playbook of what their plan is moving forward? What we've seen, uh, China just finished its Congress session that happens once a year, uh, just two weeks ago. And what we understand is they've prioritized a couple of different things, particularly in agriculture. The first is a new emphasis on food security. This has always been a priority for China, uh, but this year they've made it a political priority for local party committees and governments uh, to shoulder political support for becoming um, – they've, they've set these quantitative targets for production capacity greater than 650 million tons uh, by 2025 to ensure food security domestically. Um, in 2020, production capacity was at 675 million tons, so this essentially aims to ensure a stable level of production as urbanization continues moving forward. China's also set a domestic priority to become a seed superpower. Um, so again, this idea of increasing productivity domestically, they've also set this priority of becoming a seed uh, superpower in the future, which is another area where obviously the U.S. is very competitive. We're talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President with the U.S.-China Business Council. And therein, uh, Jake, uh, what you just described kind of is really what we're talking about here. This this is, when you look at the big picture, the, the grander scale here of what's at stake, two huge economies really competing for the top spot. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, the new administration has prioritized on multiple occasions that this is competition, that the relationship will be defined by cooperation where possible, and we'll cease into that particularly on climate change, which is a big priority, competition is going to be the other side of that coin. And I think we saw this before uh, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor went to Alaska. They first went to Japan. They first went to Korea to align with allies and ensure that they had a, a unified vision for the way they want to engage with China going forward. That obviously makes China very uncomfortable. It comes across as containment to the Chinese government, and that can lead to some friction like what we saw at the beginning of the meeting. So what are you hearing from your customer, your clients, as you talk with them about doing business with China right now? What's that like? Well, we talk to our member company executives. They continue to tell us that the business environment in China remains fairly stable. 
The Chinese government is very sensitive to some of the supply chain resilience initiatives that are being pushed forward by the United States. So they want to create a more favorable environment for U.S. companies on the ground in China. Uh, we also understand uh, that many of our, most of our member companies are in China for China. So they're not manufacturing in China to export back to the United States. And that they see China as a major part of global growth in the decade ahead, but around 30%. So companies remain committed to being in China to access the local market. At the same time, they're also very sensitive to some of these political dynamics. And they're looking and exploring and testing other markets where they could produce goods that would be more for export to ensure that if these political issues come up, if tariffs continue to be a part of the relationship, that they're well prepared going forward. Jake, uh, the Biden administration is uh, spending a lot of money and pushing to spend a lot more. Uh, and that brings up the issue that we've, you know, it's been around for quite some time, but it's cer certainly front and center again when you just have a $1.9 trillion domestic package and now pushing a $3 trillion domestic package. That is the amount of debt we're accumulating, and China uh, being, I believe, the primary holder of a lot of our debt and concerns about uh, them calling those loans or having you know, power over us because of that financially. What are your thoughts on that? So the two sides are mutual hostages on, on this one, Mike. I, the Chinese government maintains a significant amount of dollar-backed treasuries. Uh, the challenge is, is if they were ever to put those on the market at fire sale prices, for example. Obviously, that would hurt the United States, but it would also have a huge impact on China's reserves of U.S. currency because their value would drop as well. Uh, so in a lot of ways, the Chinese still view U.S. treasuries as a really safe asset. I think it's very unlikely that they would pull that string in a conflict with the United States unless things got so bad uh, that, that we're not talking about just political or economic challenges. We're talking about a different type of competition. And, and I don't think we're anywhere near that level of ang um, anxiety or antagonism yet. So many levels to this relationship, that's for sure. There are still some tariffs in place, right, between the U.S. and China? Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> the phase one trade agreement, uh, folks will remember, they, they only did away with the last tranche of tariffs that were never actually implemented, and they rolled back some of the, the, the list three tariffs. Um, so the challenge is, is that the Biden administration continues to message that tariffs will be the basis of their trade relationship with China moving forward. We understand the phase one trade agreement is still under review. Um, but unfortunately, the tariffs are likely to stay in place until we have a comprehensive China strategy from the new administration. And that could take a couple of more months before we get there. That said, when you talk to U.S. trade negotiators, they understand that phase one is a very unbalanced agreement that very much favors the United States. There's almost no reason to back out of it because of the benefits that it gives in a lot of ways to farmers. Uh, what are your thoughts on Catherine Tai as our new U.S. trade representative and uh, what her uh, track record indicates might be her approach to dealing with China? Ambassador Tai has worked on China issues professionally for more than a decade. She obviously took China to the World Trade Organization uh, when they uh, did things incorrectly. We took them to court at the WTO. Uh, she's also worked in Congress on a number of issues that touched on China, including phase one. Uh, there are very few people that can match her expertise on trade law. She will be a resource in that area, and very few will be able to challenge that expertise. Uh, it, it's 
it's yet we've yet to be able to see where she'll fall on China. I think China's probably going to be lower on the administration's priority list. Right now, they're focused on rebuilding these multilateral coalitions. And while we see the fireworks and the headlines around the Alaska meeting, there are other things in the domestic agenda that are much, much higher on the agenda for the uh, Biden administration now. Obviously, infrastructure. We saw the COVID bill. Um, China will continue to be a part of that. Catherine Tai will be a part of the discussion. But this is not going to be the same that we saw from Ambassador Lighthizer and President Trump. The bilateral trade deficit is not a core priority of this administration, and trade is going to be much lower to other priorities. Uh, you mentioned food security is a real priority for China. Uh, we keep hearing some reports. It's hard to get a lot of accurate information out of China at times, but we hear reports that maybe African swine fever is uh, certainly not gone. It's still an issue there and quite brings questions into their pork supplies, things like that. Are you hearing anything on that? I, Mike, I'm not. I'm afraid that I'm, I'm a little bit out of the loop on, on, the, on some of the on-the-ground okay. pork issues there in China, so I apologize. I'll have to punt on that one. Yeah. Okay. So, But food their food security priority, it, it's always a challenge, right? Because they have so many people, they cannot produce nearly enough to meet those needs. So food security being a priority for them is not new, but it seems to be a new emphasis right now. That's well, so food security has always been a priority for the Chinese people. As you mentioned, they have an enormous population. They do need to import a significant percentage of their, their food stocks from outside of China. It's considered to be a national security goal, right? Uh, they, they view it as a highly sensitive area that's on par with sovereignty, national security domestically within China. I think they see some of the signals from the United States on supply chain resiliency and decoupling on the U.S., and they're thinking about how that could impact other parts of the relationship in the future, including on food, and, and perhaps there's a bit more of an impetus now to drive that forward more quickly domestically going forward. The, the challenge, of course, is arable land and uh, productivity domestically within China, and, and that's not anywhere near where we are in the United States. They just didn't win the geographic lottery. Um, so they will continue to remain reliant on foreign food stocks for the foreseeable future, even if their goal is complete self-reliance. Jake, as always, thanks for joining us. I mean, there's just so much to sort through when it comes to U.S.-China relations, and we appreciate your perspective always. Thank you. Thank you. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Some interesting insights into the U.S.-China relationship and what we see going forward with the Biden administration and, and China. All right, Biden administration now pushing a $3 trillion infrastructure package, even though there's a lot in there that has very little to do, if any, with the infrastructure. We'll talk about that and more with Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition next. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. 
and store raw meat, poultry, and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're joined by Mimi Falkman, premium lubricants expert from CHS, to talk about avoiding equipment downtime during spring planning. Why is it so important to use the right lubricants? A lubricant is really the lifeblood of your machine. And as it operates through all of these different components, especially in that engine, they're faced with really intense pressures and intense heat, but also outside. Farmers are running in dusty, dirty conditions. Sometimes they're sloppy, they're wet. There's a lot of elements that can really degrade a subpar lubricant product. So it's really key to use a high quality product that meets OEM recommendations and current specs to make sure that the lubricant that you're using stands up to your expectations and the conditions that you're working in. Yeah, let's talk more about that. Mimi, what should farmers look for in a lubricant to help their engines meet the demands of spring planning? That's a great question. I would say farmers should look for three specific things. The first being that the lubricant that they're selecting meets current API specifications. So that's currently CK4 or FA4, depending on what your engine or OEM requirements are. The second thing I would recommend is that farmers look for a synthetic lubricant product. These types of products are engineered really to stand up to severe conditions and under operating elements as well. Then the third thing I would say is find a lubricant that has a low shear stability index number. This relates to the type of polymer technology which is inside of the product. And that low shear stability index indicates that that product can stand up to those intense pressures and intense shearing and prolong the life of not only the oil within the drain interval, but also your engine in the long term. That's Mimi Falkman, a premium lubricants expert from CHS. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. Egg retailers, co-ops, and custom applicators have enormous productivity requirements. With thousands of acres of fertilizer to apply in a short window of time, they don't have time to make mistakes in the field. Intelligent Ag's Recon SpreadSense is the first ag technology that monitors the flow of product on floaters. The technology identifies flow issues to avoid streaks in the field that can hurt yield potential. Reduce the risk of misapplication by investing in Recon SpreadSense. Never doubt what you're putting out. Visit IntelligentAg.com to learn more. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl. 
But with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, lots to talk about with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, I thought of you when I saw the story this week that uh, there's a proposed merger between uh, two railroads, uh, Canadian Pacific Railway and Kansas City Southern Railway. My first thought was, uh, wow, merger, less competition, that uh, that might not be a good thing for uh, those needing the rail service, such as agriculture. Uh, but obviously there could be benefits too. So how do you uh, analyze this proposed merger? Yeah, I mean, whenever, as we all know, whenever there's a merger and an acquisition, you know, sometimes the, the benefits accrue primarily to the shareholders, sometimes benefits accrue to the customers, and sometimes benefits accrue to both. And so we really need to kind of wait and see as this shakes out. Um, you know, naturally, when we have a, a merger or an acquisition within the rail industry, uh, that does rightfully raise a red flag for us because, you know, what often happens is you have a, a less accessible rail service or you might have higher rail rates. And there's been a, a legacy of that within the rail industry. But, you know, I will say with, with this particular merger, um, you have two railroads that have really different geographical footprints. Um, we get more worried when you have two railroads merge where they have a, almost an identical footprint because what that pretends is they're going to liquidate track or they're going to discontinue service. This has, I think, a greater possibility of you know, merging two networks together and then all of a sudden improving service for a number of rail customers. So yeah, I guess, again, the bottom line is we'll wait and see. Um, we still, you know, rightfully, you know, you know, have some, you know, healthy degree of, of skepticism, but we also think there's, there's an opportunity that this could be of benefit to a number of agricultural shippers. Okay, so we'll wait and see on that. Now, let's look at this proposed $3 trillion so-called infrastructure package the Biden administration is pushing now, even though you look into it there are a lot of things in there to be a stretch to say they're infrastructure related but still that's how it's being uh, sold uh how do you what do you see in there that would actually help infrastructure well you, you, like you said there's a lot of things that you know it, it kind of does stretch the definition of infrastructure um but you know any kind of you know certainly there's things related to rural broadband that which would be a benefit to farmers and those who live in rural america but from a from a transportation perspective Yes, you know, improving the condition of our, our roads, our bridges, our ports, any kind of funding that would be directed to those important links to our logistics chain. Yeah, that's something that we certainly welcome. Uh, we, we, we do want to keep emphasizing 
let's focus on the needs of rural America as well, not just on urban America. It's just easy for to get so disproportionately focused on things like passenger rail and freeways and, and subways and those kind of things. We, we also need to provide necessary focus on the, the importance of moving freight in this country, including agricultural freight. So, I mean, it's just a huge bill, $3 trillion. I mean, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that just went through was a huge number. Now we're going up to $3 trillion. So we'll see if it gets through. Um, kind of get a feeling almost that they can push it through. Yeah, that's the big, real big question is whether you can do it via the, the budget reconciliation process, which will simply allow a, a 50 plus the, the, the vice president vote. Uh, to, to make it pass, um, you know, there are that it does become more and more of a stretch um, when you're starting to talk about infrastructure. Is it just something that you know, relates to the budget, which is the kind of the main criteria for uh, a budget, recon- the budget reconciliation process? So that's really going to be the big determining factor. And, you know, I think where we're at right now is they're throwing out a real big opening bid, a real big number. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if it has to be more negotiated with the Republicans and they're not able to do it completely via this budget reconciliation process. Uh, as we go into spring, uh, how are things on our waterways as far as moving uh, products, you know, thinking primarily a product coming up the rivers right now, uh, needed inputs as we go into planting season? Yeah, that's that's something that we really, you know, focus on. You know, April is, is the number one month for fertilizer shipments on the inland waterway system. So, you know, it's easy to focus on, you know, our exports and, and the fall movements heading south, but we do have a lot that moves north and, you know, particularly fertilizer. You know, so far, I, I think the, the system's pretty well positioned. Um, you know, obviously during this time of the year, you can get a lot of rainfall that, elevates water levels and makes barge transportation more difficult. Um, but so far, I think we're pretty well positioned. And so hopefully we'll, we'll have very few interruptions uh, during, this, during this time of the year. And what are you hearing out on the West Coast where we've heard about uh, backups, congestion, and basically just things stacking up uh, we, as we wait to move product out? Because a lot of products have also been coming in. What's the situation out in those West Coast ports? It's it's marginally getting better, but the you know, the overall supply chain, and this mainly relates to transporting products via container, these steel boxes that are really responsible for, for transporting so much of what we consume and what we produce. The whole supply chain is really, you know, choked up right now um, at really every element of it. And then as a result, it's making it difficult for agricultural producers to get an empty container fill it up with soybeans or other agricultural products and send it back to for the backhaul movement back to our customers in Asia. You know, the real big culprit is this unexpected and dramatic shift of spending from services into goods. And so people are spending, they're still spending money, but it's, it's going into, you know, goods instead of trips and cruises and eating out and movies. So it's something that certainly is a a real challenge for agriculture and other industries right now. All right, Mike, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. 
Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. And that wraps it up here on this National Agriculture Day. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around.